Hello, I am Noah Katz. I'm the Assistant Manager of Bearing FM, and I'm here today with our VP Education on her last day in office, B. Morgan, to reflect on her 18-month term and to focus on some of the amazing stuff that she's done and what she's going to do in the future. So, hi, B. How are you? Uh, yeah, hi. Um, yeah, this is really kind of bittersweet for me because I absolutely love my time, and particularly over the last, like, since I announced that I was leaving, everybody's been like so kind so affirming and being like yeah you, you've done a really good job so like I kind of great that I've got a life after the student union but at the same time I'm also just there like I don't want to go <laughs> the work you have done has been so amazing we're going to talk about that now but you, you know working with you as a rep as a colleague and as a friend has been the, such an amazing experience for reasons such as this safety net no detriment policy thing <laughs> so should you maybe explain the No Detriment story, how it sort of come about this year? Yeah, it's been a really difficult one. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head in the sense that it's hard to actually describe what it is. And so I think it kind of starts with last year. So it was first lockdown. Nobody had a clue what was happening. Lancaster announced their policy with and like I literally didn't even know they were writing it. And to be fair, I felt that like my comments were taken on board. And I've definitely been part of decision making this time around, which has been really helpful. So obviously we're in lockdown 3.0 at this point. And I remember actually I was part of the decision making uh, last summer when stupidly optimistic, but so was the rest of the country thinking like, OK, we're just going to have like a blended term one. And then we're going to have all of our in-person teaching, like the labs, et cetera, for that kind of thing. It's going to be in January. And, and now it's very clear that that's, that's not the case. So as a result, the university has had to rethink how they deliver like everything. And that's the case across the country. It's actually been really nice to see. It's kind of the politicised nature of the students at the moment being there like, um, what am I paying for? Slash, this is a ridiculous expectation of, of what we're supposed to deliver. And yes, I've been part of that conversation. And it's been really interesting to see because like I go in university management meeting like I meet people three times a week in various different forms, which is a level of frequency and contact that I've I'd never had before this pandemic. So that's been really great. I can remember one of the senior managers turn around going, well, the Department of Education or the Office of Students have changed their mind again. Everything we've planned, we're going to have to do again. And I do sympathise with staff at that point. So this policy came about as it kind of started to happen across the country. I know I was part of a call just after Christmas where the NUS launched their Students deserve better camping, which basically is around several demands. But one of them is around the word they use is safety net for students. But I'm also aware that university is in a difficult position because the regulator, Office for Students, had a massive crackdown on grade inflation. So safety nets or cancelling exams like Lancaster did isn't possible at any uni right now. And that's been really difficult and a disheartening message to give students because that's out of Lancaster Uni's hands and, and anybody's hands, really even though that's what I agree students really need. And I know that thanks to yourself, Noah, being able to organise Lancaster students together as part of your petition. Ironically, you launched it on the week that I was off, but it meant that I, I had something on immediately the Monday back I had. I was like, right, we've got like a thousand signatures here. What are you going to do about it? And see the rate that that grew. And also to have a petition that was academic focus to get so many signatures. I was there like, mm-hmm. Yeah, so... I definitely thought your demands were fair. That started the conversation that meant that I was able to be involved in stuff around regulation changes and what they're going to do this year. So I sit on something called the Standing Committee of Academic Regulations, or SCAR as the uni knows it. 
And then that feeds into something called the Academic Standards and Quality Committee, which a lot of jargon, I know, but basically the Regulations Committee are full of people who are really, really good at attention to detail. And we debate, literally debate words sometimes. And that goes into something called the Manual of Academic Regulations and Practice, MARP which has got everything you need to know about how university works. Um, it gets updated every year. And that's where if, for example, you ever had a complaint or plagiarism, etc., it'll set out exactly how that happens. Similarly with rewarding your grades. So we need to look at the changes that we're making. It's been a bit weird this time around because unfortunately our Pro Vice Chancellor for Education, she's been off ill since last year. Amazing lady. But it did mean that it was quite complicated to work out kind of where the power was in, in senior management for me anyway. But going through that process, we basically looked at what concessions had been given last year and university staff set out various different scenarios that we could consider and were invited to give comments, etc. So it was really interesting to see kind of like the different things on offer. Like I know I personally did research, for example, on Manchester Uni, York, Newcastle, Nottingham, Exeter, because I know Exeter was the first uni to launch the No Detriment, etc. last year. And I know that from that, having had conversations, i.e. with yourself now, etc., and my FTO team as well, because we came back together after Christmas and were like, what are our five priorities? And making sure our education was, was safe was one of them. And looked at that and were like, well, what of these? If I, as a representative, had to go to the university table with some things I felt were effectively like my hills to die on, what were those going to be? And what exists currently in the sector? Because typically no university wants to be the first pioneer. What can we use? So it kind of came across, well, we need to make sure that there is a way for students to effectively be bumped up if um, something goes wrong. And that was definitely one of them. I was like, definitely free research because it is expensive as it is. And with not being able to have part time work that a lot of students have, like that's definitely something that's important. We did discuss actually uncapped research, but actually had a really interesting conversation with the rest of the FTO team where we were there like, well, is that actually then an incentive to fail? And after debating whether you could move, for example, the threshold and whether that could trigger a reset, et cetera, ultimately with that, like, the university isn't, just isn't going to pass this. So unfortunately, dropped that and was like, well, focus on free research because that affects money in students' pockets as well. But next, so Lancaster adopted last year a policy of allowing self-certification, but it didn't need external evidence around saying that my mental health has been affected because of COVID. We're like, we want that to continue because... I know our exceptional circumstances, it's really difficult for a lot of people right now and getting on counselling waiting lists, going to speak to GP, etc. What also was rather conveniently timed is Lancaster Uni commissioned an external audit of its complaints procedures and its regulations and its appeals, etc. And the results of that were really interesting. I won't explain them all because it's quite complicated, but one of the ones that benefited this process was the fact that the external person looked at all the other unis and it was really weird that Lancaster didn't actually tell students from the external examiner boards whether mitigation circumstances etc had been taken into account. I know like on a personal level for example I think back to my first year I got gone to a fever and spent some time in hospital and as a result missed a lot of teaching but I still to this day don't know whether the grades I got at the end of first year were how well I did or whether they were artificially bumped. I have no idea. So I know that stuck with me now because that was like literally four or five years ago. And I'm still like, did that mean anything? Yeah. And it was recommended that that Lancaster actually told students whether things were going to be taken into account. So we were able to kind of push for we want students to have mitigating circumstances, etc. taken into account. And we want some transparency there. 
around the whole circumstances around COVID, like kind of beyond just an individual circumstance. But for example, I mean, it's the one I always use because it's kind of my background, but I can think of if you were supposed to go on a field trip for a module and you're having to identify virtual rocks, it's very different from going in a field and being able to say, oh, this is granite or whatever. Like that is a very different story. And that isn't something that you'd individually put mitigating circumstances in, in for but it still needs to be taken into account. So that's kind of the story of roughly how we got there. And so SCAR got together, we kind of looked at the scenarios and, and a final document was actually presented to the head of the academic standards and quality for chair's approval. This was fine, but it wasn't as far as we wanted it to go. It hadn't got the exceptional circumstances and it hadn't got the free research. And conveniently, myself and the FTO team, we happened to have our first joint meeting of the student union, so the bottom officers and the chief exec, with university executive board. So the vice chancellor's kind of shaken up a bit how he wants to run things. But the executive board is effectively chaired by him with pro-vice chancellors, deputy vice chancellor. Senior leadership team. Yeah, all of those kind of types, but way smaller than it used to be in the previous five chances so really kind of closed in collective decision making so we've got to have the first one of those and of the three things that we brought that was one of them so um, we've got the policy and it's been taken to academic quality and then yeah. executive board Lucy's met with them you've got a couple of the things you wanted but still not these mitigating circumstances or the free resets yeah we got the regulations on us it wasn't far enough we've had a discussion with ourselves we've met with the reps etc but yeah, so presented that and then to literally hear the words from the Deputy Vice Chancellor's mouth being there like, oh, yeah, we don't think it's right to charge for research this year. And then the Vice Chancellor being like, yeah, you can take that as a win. And being there like, wait, what? Has this just happened? Because they weren't budging on some of the other things to actually see so many changes there. And then similarly from the academic registrar being like, yeah, we're going to continue the policy of the evidence. And I was like, just shook. <laughs> um but yeah, that's when we finally got it through and then worked with the student union comms team to be able to get everything we could out in as student friendly words as possible, because it's complicated as ever. Yeah, I yeah. think our listeners will understand this idea of not needing evidence for mitigation circumstances and that you won't have to pay for research. But what are the other headline wins that you've managed to achieve? Oh, gosh, yeah, they're, they're complicated. So I'll try and explain them in as best as I can. Um, so I'll, I'll go basically through how it is on social media. So there's kind of eight so free research is the first one, self-declare with no external evidence needed. So number three, so extra ways to gain the upper class of your degree when in the boundary between classes. So what I like to call the relegation zone. So if you're sat between a 2-1 and a first, for example, 17.0 is the top of a 2-1, 17.1, 17.4 is the boundary, and then 17.5 and above is a guaranteed first. So that middle zone in mark there are specific ways that the university calculates whether you are a first or a q1 candidate so last year they introduced a whole bunch of other ways that you were able to do that and this is one addition to normal to be able to get the upper class and i was able to get them to keep one of them and um, they didn't include all of them again due to grade inflation but this was one that i was really happy with so what the actual regulation says is so if your core modules are in the higher class and those core modules as part of your part two, so second and third year or second, third and fourth year in trading masters, are more than 40% of your degree and they're in the higher class, then you can get the higher class. So that should help some students as well. So hopeful for that. 
Hopefully that makes sense. If it doesn't, all the comms are on the SU website and will be explained yeah. in detail in the coming weeks by the university as well. And you can always reach out to the Students' Union advice team too yeah. with help yeah. for this stuff. Yes. So next up, more opportunities to discount marks where you've not done well. So what this means is, this is a, again, uni jargon, I'm sorry, but this is a process called condonation where you condone a module, which basically means that you say, I'm not going to make these credits count. And normally there's a limit on how much you can do. And basically you set them aside and say, when I calculate my degree, those aren't going to be included, which should bump up your average. And the university have said that there'll be more opportunities for you to condone modules when they are, for example, particularly if you've not done well in new forms of assessment because of COVID. So they're giving you, again, another opportunity to put those credits that you haven't done well in because of COVID aside that don't impact your overall degree. Yeah, and that sort of that condemnation thing also takes into account an essay if you do particularly badly out of the blue when you're usually really good at essays, right? Yeah, you can condone things normally as well. So if something's happened or whatever, you're just like, that's a random bum grade. I didn't do well in that module. Not going to count. So extra opportunity to do that because COVID. So that's good. Next, grade scaling. So this actually happens across the university anyway, but it's not common practice. It happens a lot in LUMS and some departments in FST but it's going to be used across the board now. Or transparently used is probably a better way of saying it because, again, external examiners or behind closed doors, you just suddenly come out with a different grade and it's like, why? So this is kind of with a pinch of salt in the sense that it's to achieve within normal ranges. So it's going to be what results were based on prior to COVID. But at the same time, that could mean that your class is scaled down in the same way that you could be scaled up. University, again, grade inflation. I couldn't get them to say, we'll just scale you up if you haven't achieved. But I felt that when basically saying, do we want to scale or not to scale? I felt it was going to benefit more students to include it, even if there is a possibility of going down. Yeah, and that one might sound a bit confusing to listeners, but I, I think that's a more, more than a let's see what happens with it than preemptively, I don't know, worrying about. Scale. Yeah, yeah, it's um, generally speaking, it's it's for scaling up. It It's not used to scale down very much. It should be good news because particularly with the new alternative assessments they've got to have this year, that it's going to be a real kind of backup to be able to know that if, if nobody understands it or it's hard to do, etc., you've got that. I'm not going to do any worse than previous years. And ultimately, you're all going into the same job market. So that's what you need. So it is a positive. OK, next, transparent grading from external examiners for the first time. So I kind of mentioned this previously, but they're going to release a transparency report, which will explain to students what they have considered in that decision making. So has there been scaling? Has there been module COVIDness? that they've overarching considered, you know what I'm trying to say, because that's kind of the next one. So Mark will consider the COVID context and explain what has been considered. So like I said, for example, what would normally be a practical module and hasn't been able to be. Yeah, scaling or average marks that people have previously. So they will explain what has been considered and why you come up with the grades you have, which is often the grounds that a lot of students appeal because they don't actually know why they've got the grade they've got. So at least now you can understand where it's come from. And then finally, so first year students who would normally have to reset can now freely progress into second year. So what this means in regulation terms is they've lowered the point where you would normally have to reset. So if you get an aggregate score of nine, you can just progress and you're not going to be forced to do a compulsory reset. There will still need to be students who reset if you do worse than that. But if you do the basic rough pass, you'll still be able to, to get through. So 
that is all of them. I realised that was complicated and difficult, but hopefully you can bear with me when I yeah. roughly got through that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you've explained those really complicated, really jargony things really well and in a good, simplistic way for our listeners to understand. So thank you for that. And again, I think it's just showing the power of the student voice. Nine percent of students signed this petition. Yeah, my kind of general saying to students is do not underestimate the influence that you have like with the university like this wouldn't have happened if everybody wasn't pressuring the university the way they are we've been able to get something that's pretty great considering the sector there are a lot of universities with far less things out there so that's really really positive and yeah I thank everyone who got involved in that even if it's just being angry to your mates it still still counts (laughs) so that's the bulk of this interview but we want to focus on maybe some lighter shorter answers as well to reflect (laughs) on this amazing 18 month term of office that you've had what do you think you'd say was your biggest achievement over your term oh um yeah that's that's a difficult one but I I do because I was asked this the other day um I think actually it's the student feedback committee that I got approval for last year because these regulations for example yeah they're really really great and they're massive they're only going to be in place now getting a committee that for the for the first time has somewhere where student academic feedback actually formally goes is impeccable because that will empower students for years to come and it will give them the power to have things like this in place and give them that boost that they need because navigating uni has been hard and I'm also kind of proud of that one as well because that's something that I personally identified as a problem and I said like this is how I think we can fix it so I think that one's I think the biggest because it will have the most long-term goal so I, I have real high hopes for that. Unfortunately, I won't get to be part of the first meeting, but yeah. So so for context with that, so the rep system works is all reps in a faculty come and meet twice a term and give loads of feedback from you, from their peers and from their experiences. They then feed that up through their departmental lead reps to their faculty reps. I'm one of them. I'm the first undergrad rep. That's kind of where it stops. There's no formal place to feed that back. So I have informal meetings with the FAS Associate Dean for Education. And then it's kind of, OK, it's there. But, you know, there's no sharing of best practice amongst faculties or formal comparisons. So this is a really it won't it won't necessarily be something that all students are going to notice. But slowly you'll see that there's more uniformity in practice throughout the other faculties. And it will be something really useful for the future. But you've also done amazing work to do with anonymous marking and laid the groundwork for when we get back in the real world, this pushing on this fight for recorded lectures and for capacity. What do you think was your biggest surprise about being an FTO? Well, I remember when I was originally considering whether I was going to run and what I wanted to do is I basically just had ideas and I wasn't sure what role I wanted to run for. I was considering campus communications, I like graphics, I was considering president, all sorts. And ultimately, I wrote down what my ideas were and they seemed to fit best under education. So I ended up in the education role. I think what's been surprising for me has actually been how much wider stuff I've been able to do. It's not just about education. Like, for me, it's wild right now, but like, Paul, our vice president of sports, is also taking a lead as part of governance democracy. And like I was able to help out with societies and all of the other things that I've been able to do beyond just the education stuff. And there's so much scope for change beyond just I'm education. It's I'm a full time officer. And and that kind of experience of just everything else that's available has been 
really, really helpful for me in a personal development perspective because I've seen so much. But yeah, it's mean I've been able to leave my mark on the SU and them on me, to be fair, in all sorts of crazy ways I wasn't expecting. What do you think the biggest difficulty or obstacle has been that you've faced in your time in office? I don't know where to start. <laughs> I, I, I literally don't know where to start. You could say selling the sugar house. You could say ending up with an FTO team of three, having two rounds of industrial action losing your pro VC for education, pandemic, like, honestly, the amount of things you could list, you could not have written it. But that said, I think, hardest thing, I think, hmm, I think for me was when I burnt myself out a bit. So it was kind of lockdown one, when everything was completely up in the air, the university moved to their crisis structure, which at the time didn't have any student representation on. So I was fighting on a virtual door and I knew things were happening without me, but I couldn't see them. And yeah, feeling really left out of decision making, but also feeling massive, intense pressure of what do I do? But there is no rule book. And then at that point, I- I'd also told myself, I was like, oh, well, I'm going to take a big Easter holiday. But it was lockdown, so I didn't. And then I literally hadn't used so much of, of my leave. And I was like, right, okay, but I need to get this stuff done. And like literally just working myself so hard from home in a way that I'd never done it before was just intense. And I think that that was the hardest thing, not to say other things that have been easy, but yeah, having to develop some self-discipline and taking that step back from the job going at the end of the day, you are a human, you do your best for students when you are feeling your best. And at the end of the day, there is no point pushing yourself as hard. It's not the end of the world. So I think that has been a really difficult lesson to learn and a long lesson. There is such thing as a work-life balance. It's been understanding the line of you can only do your best for students if you are feeling your best, but kind of learning that the hard way-ish. But yeah, it's been really great because I know that I can apply that to, to my life after Students' Union now because I've, I've learned that. But yeah, at the same time, I did make a difference. So I don't think I regret it because I know that it's made me who I am now and I've learned that and ultimately got some change for students. So obviously we wouldn't be having this conversation if you're not moving on. So where are you going? Why are you leaving? And what are you going to be doing in the future? Yeah, so this is a a wild one because I think it comes back to January 2020. I'd actually applied for a job in the Met Office. So something that I'd said since I was like 16 that I wanted to do. And I'd had an interview and I got rejected from the job a few hours before the results night when I rerun, which was fine because I was like, it's okay, I'm rerunning. We'll see what happens. I mean, it would have been a different story if I didn't get it. Then the following Monday, they called me and said, actually, we'd like to offer you it. And I was just like, I'm not good at decisions on a good day. And it took about a month kind of to and froing with with them because this was the start of lockdown as well. So I didn't know what remote working was like. And I was like, I don't think I'm ready to move to Exeter on my own. So I didn't. And I know I probably hid that decision for a while because I was like, people are going to hate me. It's really stupid. But actually, it's the right thing to do. And then I kind of told myself, okay, you're here for another year, but you also don't have to be here for another year. If something that's amazing that jumps up, I know we've got such a strong Fulton Officer team right now. And the place the union is, it's changing. And there's going to be difference. And we've got a new chief executive coming in. And I'm really excited for where it's going next. And I do feel like they're going to be okay. And then I started applying for jobs, but 
a lot of them are graduate schemes, which obviously normally would be the September, which have been imperfect. But I, I mean, this was a graduate intern scheme, so I presumed it was that same time. But they're like, oh, no, we'd like you to start in February after I got the interview. And I was like, oh, my God, I had a very, very intense Christmas because I was like, wait, what? What's going on? Because I had to wait for people to get back into the office to answer my questions. But yeah, ultimately, the decision was I'm not sure I can turn down another job. The market that it is right now in what I think because I also um, I was part of actually the university's capital connections program. So I got to go to see employers around London and we got to go into the foreign office and see like how they work. We did like a um, assessment centre and things. And I was like, I actually think that I'd be really good at this. I think I'd really like this. I mean, I'm interested to see whether I'm going to like the fact that I won't be able to make all of the decisions myself, which I do at the moment. But yeah, I was like, I, was like, I think I could, could do this. Yeah, so I'm going to be part of the global opportunities team as a graduate intern. And I'll be working on like environment and sustainability, which is what my degree background is, which is going to be crazy to go back to science. But a lot of it's going to be around policy making, which is kind of combining my love of what my original passion was with. But now the skills I've got in this role. So I'm moving to the civil service, but I also know that I'm going to keep my eye out if there are any trusteeships that are going to go in the sector because I, I don't want to leave it. Because I also, like when I was applying for jobs, I was like, I was applying literally equally in like government roles, but also higher education because I was like, I love it. But this just happened to be the one that I got first. I've had interviews in the higher education sector as well. But yeah, so don't think I'm leaving completely. I will probably end up back in here. <laughs> So does that mean yeah. you're going to be relocating to London at some point after the pandemic? Uh, well, what is crazy is um, actually I'm moving to Liverpool instead. So I've been able to take this job partly remotely. So I'm going to be currently remote as that restrictions. But even they said we're going to look at a blended working model. You only be needed in the office two or three days a week. My partner, he's just got a job in Liverpool. So we're going to go there and like it's only two hours on the train we wanted to be together so to be able to do that as a nice compromise rather than moving to London which is ridiculously expensive so that's what we're going to do it's, it's really a bit adulty though <laughs> very adulty um so obviously we're just about to enter into FTO election season so what's some advice best piece of advice you would give to the next well to the next VP education but to the next officer team well I definitely think for the VP education that it's a real time of change because of the pandemic and to seize that opportunity with both hands yes okay I've effectively been able to get lecture recording but like I know that I've had assurances that online submission will be permanent and making sure that we don't regress as an institution and holding them to that like student expectations have changed keep them there I think that's gonna be really interesting I know that there's gonna be stuff around there's gonna be intertwined the impact of education and mental health and well-being and how that is for students. So I know for some of the faculty forums this week, we've been talking about what role does your academic tutor or advisor have? Like quite often they're the front line for a student going, hi, I need some help. And what does that mean? So I think that's going to be really interesting for both potentially a VP welfare or a VP education. Accessibility and, and making sure that education is, is available for all. National fights around things, as I mentioned, around the sector and particularly off the back of Black Lives Matter movement, for example, decolonizing education. But for wider officers, I think things to consider is real big time of change for both the university and the union. Like you've got new management in both. You've got a new vice chancellor, you've got a new CEO. And I know that yesterday the students union is in a difficult position financially, which is widely known. 
the student union is going to be looking at a point of review and like this mid governance democracy etc like we're going to completely change the way that decisions are made there's going to be a student council where students can be elected and get to have that form of what do we want the SU to do so I think it's really about kind of what you make of it I know sustainability and, and things is again equally a massive issue but yeah I mean for me it would be about the things that I always had at my heart when I started to run was clarity consistency and communication and I think those are still very valid now it's like how do you make sure there's a baseline student experience and what do you want that to look like whether that's from an educational or sporting or societies what do you want your student experience to look like and also it's crazy the level of responsibility that you get for a position like this you wouldn't have in any other sector like I've had budgetary responsibility I've had personal development coaching I am a trustee of a charity of the terms of a millions that is ridiculous I get to set my workload day to day and what what things I do that is amazing I mean hopefully whoever is in post one day will be able to get into the office and, and experience that environment I mean it's very sad clearing it out today and taking my face down from the ceiling I know it's very sad but yeah I, I think it is it is so great and I know that I've come out of this job a different person I'm so much stronger and kind of more sure of myself so I cannot recommend it enough. Yeah, I mean, I think I've heard people call the role the weirdest grad job ever. And it's also the weirdest interview for a job you'll ever have, I think. I'm really interested to see and carry on tuning in to Bailrig to see how this um, coverage will be looking of this weird election process this year. Yeah, I can't wait to see who, who follows me and hopefully give them some pearls of wisdom. But yeah, as you say, virtual campaigning is going to be wild. Like it was kind of one thing doing for the presidential by-election, but doing it for all of the full-time officer and the part-time officer roles is a lot. So yeah, I'm I'm definitely going to be following it. I think that leads us to a really nice close. I've been Noah Katz, the Assistant Station Manager for Berwick FM, speaking with B Morgan, our VP Education, on her last day in office.